and welcome to another episode of the Global Storytime Podcast, where every two weeks I bring you a folktale from a different country or culture. And every two weeks, I also release an episode that helps us learn more about the country or culture from where that story was written. I'm your host, Diane Strand. This week, we're going to Venezuela. Okay, let's start and find Venezuela on a map. Venezuela is a country in the very north of South America. It is bordered by Colombia to the west, Brazil to the south, and Guiana to the east. To the north of Venezuela is the Caribbean Sea. And in the Caribbean Sea, there are a few island nations that are pretty close to the coast of Venezuela. These countries include Aruba and Curaçao, which are actually not independent countries, but are autonomous parts of the Netherlands. And then there's also Trinidad and Tobago, which is its own country. The capital of Venezuela is Caracas, which is on the coast in the very north of the country. The size of Venezuela is 354,000 square miles. It is about the size of Texas and Oklahoma put together. The population of Venezuela is 28.5 million, which is a little lower than the population of Texas. I feel like Texas has somehow become a standard unit of measurement for the size and populations of countries. I don't know if that says more about Texas or more about the size of the average country. To get into the history of Venezuela, let's go all the way back to 9000 BCE. Archaeologists have found spear tips and scraping tools, like what you might use to scrape hair off of an animal hide, dating back to this period. Archaeologists have also found fossils of megafauna, meaning big, and I mean big, animals that coexisted with these hunter-gatherers. These megafauna include giant sloths that were the size of elephants, giant armadillos the size of Labrador retrievers, and toxodons, which are like a cross between a hippo and a rhino. The timeline from hunter-gatherers to when the Spanish arrived is a little hazy because none of the native languages used a writing system, so there are no indigenous records to go on. However, we do know that there were dozens of tribes like the Pimon, the Piarao, and the Timoto Cuicas, for example, who had villages of stone and thatch houses, irrigated fields where they grew potatoes, and another similar tuber called Yulucas, and they created a lot of small clay figures of humans and animals. They also used crude oil and asphalt, which is a mixture of oil and dirt, that was just naturally seeping out of the ground. And they used it as fuel for lanterns, for sealing cracks in canoes, and in medical treatments, somehow. That one I'm a little unsure of how that would work. They are also credited with creating the arepa, which is like a thick corn tortilla that can be stuffed with cheese or meat and is still a staple food in Venezuelan cuisine. Many of these tribes no longer exist today, but some, like the Pimon, still make up a sizable area in Venezuela and have been very active in protecting their rights to their land and culture. The first European contact came in 1498, when Christopher Columbus made the first of his four journeys down the South American coast. The Spanish started to settle on the islands of Cuba Agua and Margarita, just off the coast of Venezuela. 
and they called these islands the Pearl Islands because of the large population of pearl oysters found there. As a side note, pearl oysters are a specific kind of saltwater oyster that have mother-of-pearl inside its shell and are more likely to make pearls. Of course, there's no way to know if an oyster has a pearl inside unless you open it up, and if you're looking to harvest and trade pearls, it takes a lot of labor to collect all of those pearls. How did the Spanish manage to crack open thousands and thousands of oysters? You know how they did it. Slave labor. They forced the indigenous people to harvest the pearls, and it wasn't too long until both the indigenous people and the pearl oysters were devastated and near extinction on those islands. During this time, another Spaniard, Alonso de Ojeda, sailed into the Gulf of Venezuela in the north of the country and saw wooden houses on stilts that reminded him of Venice, Italy. And so he decided to call the place Little Venice or Venezuela. Spain started to colonize the mainland of Venezuela in 1502, building their first settlement called Cumana, which is the oldest continuously inhabited European-established city in South America. In 1522, the Spanish king, Charles I, owed a lot of money to a German banking family called the Wesslers. And to pay off his debts, he decided to give the rights to the Spanish Venezuelan colonies and the right to explore and colonize the rest of the land to the Wessler family. I feel that's a little like if you owe your friend 10 bucks from lunch and instead of paying them back, you offer access to a stranger's fridge. You don't own the fridge or anything in there, but you say, yeah, go ahead, just take whatever you want. No problem. Anyways, Klein Wienedig, or Little Venice in German, was reportedly homed to the famed mythical city of El Dorado, the city of gold, though no one ever found it. The German rule only lasted until 1546, until the Spanish governor of the province of Venezuela had a prominent German explorer and a member of the Wessler family executed, and then Spain took back the rights to the colony. The late 1500s saw expansion of Spanish settlements, including large ranches raising livestock in the plains along the Orinoco River. There was, of course, opposition from the native tribes, and attacks on the Spanish were led by local leaders, most notably by chiefs named Guaycaipiro and Tamanaco. But they were not successful, and the tribes were soon conquered. In 1632, gold mines were established, and slave labor was used to extract the metal. Native people were taken as slaves, as were Africans, when Venezuela became a part of the transatlantic slave trade. From 1576 to 1810, 100,000 Africans were captured and shipped over to work in the mines and plantations. Just as the indigenous folks tried to rebel against the Spanish, so did the African slaves with a number of revolts. The biggest one was led by El Negro Miguel, who is also known as Rey Miguel, and Rey in Spanish means king. He formed an army of 1,500 escaped Africans, indigenous, and mixed-race people, but they were not successful in overthrowing the colonialist rule. In the 1700s, the Spanish found gold in other parts of South America, like in Peru, and the Venezuelan colonies temporarily grew weaker. And then it was discovered that coffee and cocoa grow very well in the area, and the new plantations revived Spain's interest in Venezuela. 
1777, the province of Venezuela was given more freedom to govern itself without any input from Spain. Caracas, the capital, founded in 1567, became known as an intellectual city with universities and internationally known writers and musicians. Over in Europe, in 1808, France invaded Spain in the Napoleonic Wars and the Spain monarchy collapsed, giving the Spanish colonies in northern South America the perfect opportunity to declare independence from Spain. This area of northern South America was called Gran Colombia. Unfortunately, it wasn't that easy to break away as there were plenty of people, royalists, who wanted to stay with Spain, and so there was simultaneously a civil war and a war against Spain. Eventually, Gran Colombia became independent, in part due to the military leadership of Simón Bolívar. But war was not over, and the province of Venezuela wanted to have its own independence. Once again, Simón Bolívar led the fight, and in 1820, Venezuela became an independent country with Simón Bolívar as the first president. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I usually end my history recaps at the independence or formation of a country in question, mainly because I don't want this show to be too long and there are other things I want to cover. So even though there are 200 more years of Venezuelan history after independence, I'm just going to leave it here. The one thing that I will mention is that remember when I talked about the native tribes finding and using oil that was just oozing out of the ground? That abundance of oil or petroleum plays a huge part in Venezuela's tumultuous modern history. And I encourage you to do some more research of your own if you're curious. But remember, check your sources and make sure you are reading or listening to facts and not opinions. Okay. Let's move on to languages spoken in Venezuela. I bet you can guess Venezuela's national language. It's Spanish. Including Spanish, there are over 40 languages spoken in the country. Most of them, of course, are indigenous languages. Many of the indigenous languages can be categorized into language groups, where words may be the same or similar across languages. Some of these groups include the Arawak family, the Caribbean family, and the Chibcha family. There are other languages that are very distinct and don't fit in with any language family. Most, if not all, of these languages are slowly being spoken less and less and may be extinct one day, though the Wayu and Pimon languages are still spoken by sizable populations. Other languages spoken in Venezuela include, and I'm listing these in order of the number of people who speak them, from highest to lowest, are Chinese, Portuguese, Italian, Arabic, German, and English. There is also a German dialect called Colonial Tovar that is only spoken in one little part of the country and nowhere else in the world. In addition to all of these languages, Venezuela also has its own version of sign language. The last little bit that I want to mention, because I think it's interesting, is that high school students in Venezuela have to take two years of Latin. It's interesting that Latin, which is no longer the mother tongue for anyone around the world, will never die. 
because it is the root of many of the Romance languages, and of course, it is used in science. Meanwhile, it is estimated that 26 languages evaporate from the earth as the last speakers die every year. Just food for thought. Now on to what religions are practiced in Venezuela. 71% of Venezuelans are Catholic. 17% are Protestant. 6% are agnostic. And 2% are atheist. 3% follow religions like Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Druze, which is an Arabic-based religion that includes elements of several different Central Asian religions. There is another 1% that practices Santeria, which is a blend of Yoruban or a West African religion with Catholicism. I also read that Venezuela is known for its syncretic religious traditions, which means that they will mix and match parts of a few religions that they like. This has led to the creation of a cult of sorts called Maria Leonza, which, according to lore, started with the daughter of an indigenous chief being swallowed by an anaconda, and after praying to the mountain spirit while in the belly of the snake, she was saved. The snake burst open, Maria popped out, and went to live on the mountain for the rest of her days. The religion that formed around her blends elements of native beliefs, African spiritualism, and Christianity. It's now time for the national food of Venezuela. I mentioned the popularity of arepas before, but they are apparently not popular enough to be considered the national food. That distinction is given to pabellón criollo. Pabellón criollo is a Venezuelan version of rice and beans, and in this case, black beans. It is served with a shredded beef stew on top and sometimes has fried plantains on the side or a fried egg on top. Sometimes people put sugar on their beans, which is something I've never thought of, or they add hot sauce or a creamy white cheese called queso palmito. During the Catholic Lent, when people are not allowed to eat beef, pabellón criollo is often topped with fish or capybara, which is a very large rodent. It's been a while since I've plugged a random YouTube channel that I found, so I'd like to share with you a channel called You Can Cook, where a delightful host will teach you how to make pabellón criollo if you want to know. The national sport of Venezuela is not soccer like I thought it was. I don't know why I always think that soccer is the number one sport everywhere, but instead it is baseball. However, soccer is a close second. Baseball was introduced to the country in the 1920s by American expats who worked in oil extraction. In 1941, the Venezuelan team beat the Cuban team in a Caribbean baseball tournament, and from then on, the country has been crazy about it. The national team has won many international tournaments, and there have been 350 Venezuelans that have played for American Major League Baseball. There are even six American Major League Baseball teams that have training facilities in Venezuela. Our fun fact for this week about Venezuela is that it is home to the largest waterfall in the world. Angel Falls is in the south of the country in Canema National Park, and it is a tributary to the Rio Turan. Rio, of course, means river in Spanish. It falls from a very impressive height of 2,648 feet 
or 807 meters from the top of Ayantapui, which is a mesa or flat-topped mountain. The name Angel Falls came from an American aviator named Jimmy Angel, who in 1937 was flying around Venezuela looking for places that might have oil, flew over the falls, and decided to land his plane near the top so he could explore a bit. However, when he decided to take off, the wheels of the airplane were stuck in mud, and he and his wife and the rest of their party had to hike down the mountain to the nearest town. It took them 11 days. As soon as the story of their harrowing journey out of the forest hit the tabloids, the waterfall became known as Angel Falls locally and internationally. The native people, of course, have a different name for the falls, and they call it Kerepakupe Meru, which means waterfall from the deepest place. That's it, folks. That is it for this episode of Let's Learn About Venezuela. If you haven't listened to episode 19A, The Basil Plant, go check it out. It's a story about a pestering king and an enterprising girl who puts him in his place, literally. If you want to learn more about Venezuela or any of the other countries or cultures that I highlight, follow the pod on Facebook or Instagram at Global Storytime Podcast. You can always email me anything. You can say hi. You can tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Seriously, I would love the feedback. But you can do that at globalstorytimepodcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't already rated or reviewed this podcast, please tell me what you think. More reviews means more people will stumble across this podcast in the future. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Diane Strand. Until next time, bye. Qué bonito es el pueblo de Venezuela. Qué bonita es la tierra venezolana. Qué bonito es el pueblo de Venezuela. Qué bonita es la tierra venezolana. Te lo digo, hermano. Te lo digo, hermana. Qué bonita es.